the Senate Foreign Relations hearing uh, will come to order. Uh, for well over a year now, we've seen the horror of Putin's illegal, unprovoked invasion and the brutality he has inflicted on the people of Ukraine. Russian airstrikes have destroyed schools, flattened apartment buildings, killed mothers and babies in maternity wards. We have witnessed deliberate strikes on bomb shelters where children and their caregivers have gone for protection, attacks on civilian nuclear facilities, and a systematic targeting of civilian infrastructure. It is a nightmare that does not let up. According to international human rights organizations, Russian forces have occupied government buildings, village schools, airport hangars, whatever they could find, and converted them into makeshift torture chambers where they beat, electrocute, and threaten to mutilate Ukrainian detainees. They have kidnapped Ukrainian children, raped Ukrainian women and girls, executed Ukrainian men, and starved innocent Ukrainian civilians from Bucha to Kherson to Mariupol. Make no mistake, these acts are war crimes and crimes against humanity. Mass atrocities that Putin and his underlings must be held responsible for. Even as the war rages on in Ukraine, we must do everything we can to gather and preserve evidence on these atrocities to lay the groundwork for justice. So Ambassador Van Schaak, I want to hear from you about what the U.S. government is doing to support these efforts. I commend the State Department for early on in the war calling Russian atrocities what they are, war crimes, and the department's determination earlier this year that these crimes amount to a widespread and systematic attack against Ukraine's civilian population. In other words, that they are crimes against humanity is laudable. Now, Ambassador, I commend you personally for your tireless effort and work uh, shining a light on atrocities around the world to combat impunity, not only for Russian crimes, but also war crimes and crimes against humanity in countless other conflicts, from Burma to Syria to Ethiopia to North Korea. But it cannot just be you and your colleagues of the Department of State and Justice. Our entire government and the international community must always follow up with actions. Ukraine's prosecutor general has chronicled more than 88,000 88,000 alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity to date. 88,000, and that number continues to grow. Thanks to the testimony of brave Ukrainians who have suffered unspeakable horrors and risked their lives so that we can know the truth, the world and this body are rallying to seek accountability. Because not taking concrete actions to bring Putin and those responsible for these atrocities to justice would set a dangerous precedent. Last year, on a bipartisan basis, Congress gave the executive branch important new authorities to provide information and other support to the International Criminal Court's war crimes investigation. And I commend the ICC for issuing arrest warrants for Putin and his so-called Commissioner for Children's Rights. But here in the United States, while we may be saying the right words and calling out these crimes, the administration has not used the tools we have provided to help hold Putin accountable. It's simply inexcusable. It calls into question our resolve and commitment to justice. There are real consequences to this inaction, and the rest of the world is taking note. Now, I know there are many who support assisting the ICC, including our witness today. The State Department has encouraged working with the ICC to bring Putin to justice. But it's no secret that the Department of Defense 
is the holdup. I asked the Department of Defense to participate in today's hearing so we could better understand why they are blocking implementation of federal law. Whatever they're thinking, a refusal to implement the law is unacceptable in this situation, blocking critical U.S. assistance for investigations into atrocities in Ukraine and is dangerous to our system of government. The Defense Department does not get to pick and choose which, la which laws it will obey. Let me repeat that. The Defense Department does not get to pick and choose which laws it will obey. The United States needs to provide full support for investigations that could lead to holding Russian officials accountable. As we continue to hear about Russian forces boiling people's hands in water, systematically raping women while threatening their children, killing innocent civilians in cold blood, we cannot sit and do nothing. Much of the world has come together in impressive unity in response to this unjust war, but we must make sure our efforts do not end with condemnation. We must seek and deliver accountability. So, Ambassador Vanchak, I look forward to exploring with you what more can be done to ensure that Putin and others are brought to justice for their war crimes, crimes against humanity, and aggression, including by supporting the ICC. We must show that this is about more than words. There must be and will be accountability for the crimes against the Ukrainian people. With that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Rich, for his comments. Well, thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, to start with, let me say that, for the record, I'm in absolute full agreement with the uh, remarks that uh, the chairman made in his opening statement on all the subjects that he covered. I'm glad we're discussing this important subject here today. Uh, I, I wish we'd have had time to... Uh, uh, had a Ukrainian witness here who could testify as to the horrors, although most of it, that's all been publicized, and uh, I understand where time's always an issue, and I'm like the chairman, I'm, I'd like to have had somebody here from the Defense Department to talk to us about why they think they're, they don't have to comply with the laws that we passed. That makes sense, but uh, we'll, uh, that we're not done with that yet. I'm sure, they, I'm sure they know that. The atrocities Putin has committed in Ukraine very quickly rose to the level of genocide after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 22. In fact, this committee passed my resolution last Congress labeling the despicable crimes against Ukrainians as such. Russian forces have deliberately targeted civilians and civilian infrastructure in their campaign to erase Ukraine off the map. One of the most egregious and blatant crimes was the Russian bombing of a maternity hospital uh, in Mariupol last March. Countless citizens, civilians, have been killed in their own beds. The uh, international community must remain steadfast in documenting and prosecuting Putin's war crimes. The vast range of these crimes requires a multi-pronged response with a variety of jurisdictions to cover every aggressor from the master planners to the foot soldiers. I welcome the ICC's recent decision to issue arrest warrants for Putin and the Russian Commissioner for Children's Rights uh, for their despicable roles in the deportation of hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians to Russia, in particular children. The, uh, the filtration camps where Russia is detaining, interrogating, and torturing Ukrainian citizens before transferring them into Russia are particularly depraved as Russians steal Ukrainian children away from their families by the thousands. Beyond the ICC's work, the Office of the Ukrainian Prosecutor General has recorded over 85,000 potential war crimes, as the chairman noted. It's important that Ukraine exercise uh, its jurisdiction over crimes it can prosecute domestically. I'm proud that the United States has provided essential assistance for the docu documentation of the war crimes 
and uh, this committee is going to see that uh, that that is enforced in our oversight capacity. We uh, we cannot allow Putin and his cronies to get away with the vicious crimes they are committing. Impunity is not an option. I look forward to hearing uh, from you, Ambassador, on the different avenues to pursue justice, as well as what else the United States can do to increase its support for accountability for the Ukrainian people. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Risch. Um, as the Ambassador at Large for Global Criminal Justice, Ambassador Van Chak advises the Secretary of State and other department leadership on issues related to the prevention of and response to atrocity crimes, including war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Ambassador Van Chak is a world-renowned scholar on human rights law, international justice issues, with significant experience in practice and academia. She taught most recently at Stanford Law School, where she directed Stanford's International Human Rights, um, uh, Human rights uh, Conflict Resolution Clinic. Uh, and so we welcome you, Ambassador. Uh, your full statement will be included in the record without objection. I'd ask you to summarize it in about five minutes or so. Obviously, you see there's a fair amount of interest in the committee, so we can have a conversation with you. And with that, you're recognized. Wonderful. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, and distinguished members of this committee. Thank you so much for the opportunity to address you today. It's really an honor and a privilege to appear before you as the sixth U.S. Ambassador at Large for Global Criminal Justice. Senators, as President Zelensky so aptly noted earlier this month, there can be no peace without justice in Ukraine. This is justice for the millions of people whose lives have been disrupted and destroyed as a result of this senseless, unlawful, unprovoked, terrible war of territorial conquest launched by President Putin. My office, in collaboration with other offices within the U.S. government and many international partners, sovereign and civil society, is working to strengthen five pathways to justice, to uphold the international norms that we all hold dear, and to ensure that those most responsible for these abuses are held to account. We welcome your support in each. So the first pathway involves international courts and institutions. Our efforts here include working to establish and then to renew the mandate of the United Nations Commission of Inquiry devoted to Ukraine, to Ukraine, multiple invocations of the Moscow mechanism of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. We've also sought to intervene in Ukraine's case before against Russia under the Genocide Convention before the International Court of Justice. And then finally, as mentioned, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has made his first move, has opened an investigation into the matter in Ukraine, and has successfully achieved two arrest warrants. We are grateful for the bipartisan legislation that Congress has enacted in support of the ICC's investigation in Ukraine, which may be the most consequential war crimes investigation in human history since Nuremberg. The second pathway to justice aims to strengthen and increase the capacity of Ukrainian institutions to document, investigate, and prosecute crimes in Ukrainian courts. This is the front line of justice. The Ukrainian Office of the Prosecutor General, as mentioned, has now recorded almost 90,000 potentially prosecutable crimes. Through the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group, funded by my office with the European Union and the United Kingdom, we are providing expert assistance and advice, capacity building, expert training, on the whole range of prosecutorial and investigative needs of the Prosecutor General, working with them in Kyiv and in the field to strengthen their ability to prosecute these cases and to sift through these 90,000 potential prosecutable crimes. 
This includes very focused attention to the scourge of conflict-related sexual violence that we know is rampant in Ukraine, as documented by the United Nations and other reputable bodies. The third pathway to justice is supporting strategic litigation that may happen in third states. In Europe, we have witnessed the mass mobilization of prosecutorial and investigative authorities operating under the Eurojust umbrella to coordinate strategies, track potential defendants, and share information and evidence. The United States is participating in these efforts through memoranda of understanding with individual states, through engagement with a joint investigative team formed by a number of European states, and also by working with civil society organizations, anti-impunity organizations that are providing potential evidence, witnesses, etc., to national prosecutorial authorities. Prosecutions for the crime of aggression offer a fourth pathway to justice. Permitting impunity for Russia's illegal war of aggression will embolden other actors who will engage in similar blatant violations of state sovereignty, territorial integrity, and political independence. For this reason, we are supporting the establishment of a special tribunal dedicated to the prosecution of the crime of aggression to those most responsible, one that is rooted in Ukraine's domestic system, but that is enhanced by multiple international elements in the form of personnel, expertise, structure, support, information sharing, financing. The final pathway to justice leads here to the United States. This involves continuing to strengthen US law and ensuring that the United States does not become a safe haven for those who commit international crimes, such as those committed in Ukraine, but also elsewhere. Congress has taken a monumental step in this direction by passing the Justice for War Crimes Act to enhance the federal war crime statute. But there's more that can be done to provide US prosecutors with the tools they need to prosecute international crimes. As Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said recently before the Senate Judiciary Committee, the United States lacks a Crimes Against Humanity statute. Crimes against humanity encompass a range of abuses, including murder, torture, rape, when they are committed in the context of a widespread or a systematic attack against a civilian population and pursuant to a policy of either a state or an organization to commit that attack. They can be committed during armed conflict, but also in times of peace. And so they can be quite useful in other situations, such as in Xinjiang, where the PRC has subjected the Uyghurs to a continuous campaign of genocide and crimes against humanity. Passing crimes against humanity legislation will better align U.S. law with all of our friends and allies and also empower U.S. prosecutors and investigators to prosecute the whole range of international crimes. Senators, there can be no secure or lasting peace without justice. Holding Russia to account for its war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other atrocities within Ukraine and against the Ukrainian people is foundational to the defense of U.S. values and also the maintenance of a peaceful, just and secure world. We welcome the support of Congress to achieve these goals, to advance these five pathways to justice, and to position the United States as a leader in international justice. And so with that, I thank you, and I welcome your questions. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. We'll start a round of five minutes. Uh, so uh, last year, I was at the International Criminal Court of The Hague. Uh, I spoke with the Prosecutor uh, uh, General of The, uh, of the Hague. Um, we had a good conversation. Um, I understand that the Department of Defense has expressed concerns that assisting the ICC's investigation could open the door to prosecutions of U.S. service members, something that has largely been dismissed by legal experts. I raised this issue with the Prosecutor General. It was not his intention by any stretch of the imagination to do that. If anything, he actively 
solicited the support of the United States, particularly in information, uh, to substantiate the, the cases. Uh, do you share the concerns that has been raised by the Department of Defense? Well, I'll say at the outset that in my role as the lead diplomat in the international justice space, I would work tirelessly to ensure that no U.S. personnel would be brought before the ICC if that were ever to come to pass again. But I do not think that that is an acute risk at this time. The prosecutor has already announced that he has deprioritized any investigation into international forces in Afghanistan and is instead turning his attention, as is appropriate, to ongoing crimes against humanity being committed by the Taliban, by ISIS-K, and by other non-state actors in Afghanistan. In addition, we know that the court operates under a principle of complementarity, so that if the national system steps up, the court will step back. That is what the prosecutor has said. And we have a robust system of military justice, and we now have the new War Crimes Act. And so we are in a very good position to take care of any matters that might emerge in the future in some future hypothetical situation. I, I do not think that the argument that by assisting in this matter, which involves the nationals of a non-state party, we are at all undermining our ability to robustly protect against any charges that might be brought or any interest in, in U.S. personnel in the future. Well, I appreciate that analysis because uh, my own discussion with him in front of other members, uh, our members, um, he said exactly the same thing. Uh, so I don't understand why the Department of Defense is not providing critical information uh, so that we can ultimately uh, get accountability here. Uh, why does the State Department support providing information and other assistance to the ICC's Ukraine investigation. Uh, what do we have to uh, contribute to the cause? You mentioned some of it in your opening statement. Uh, how critical is our assistance versus other sources? It's extremely hard to imagine the United States standing on the sidelines in this investigation, given all that we have done, the investment that we've made in Ukraine, the investment that we've made in, in pursuing justice in Ukraine. We are uniquely positioned to assist with this investigation given the unique assets that we have, the intelligence that we have, the brilliance of our, of our diplomats and our subject matter and regional experts within the um, State Department and elsewhere. There are many ways that we could be supporting this investigation, including with respect to witness protection, um, insider witnesses that may want to give testimony. All of that are, are ways that we have in the past assisted with international prosecutions before international and hybrid courts. So there are a range of ways that we could be of assistance, and none of that would, I think, jeopardize. In fact, I think it strengthens our position vis-a-vis -vis the court because it shows us that engagement works, it's important to maintain open lines of communication with international organizations, not just the court, but other international organizations that might make decisions that we might disagree with. It's important to engage in constructive, helpful assistance when we can, because that shows that we are a good faith, trusted partner in this regard. So when we have issues with an international organization, we know who to call. We have lines of communication open. We have built a relationship of trust, um, that we can then rely on and call upon if we're ever again finding ourselves in a defensive posture. Senator Coons, who was with me on this trip uh, and who's been pursuing some legislation in this regard, uh, heard the same thing. And, and one of the things that we heard uh, is that the ICC has never uh, had the nature of the challenge of a nation state as large uh, as Russia. Uh, and, and in, as, as, a, as an adversary, in a sense, mm -hmm. of course, because Putin uh, dictates what that nation state does. Um, for example, 
uh, how does the ICC protect witnesses who speak truth to power uh, about Putin's atrocities? The reach of, uh, we have seen in the Skripal and other attacks uh, of what Russia is capable of doing, uh, going far outside of its borders into other countries to pursue people uh, who speak out uh, against uh, the regime. What more does the ICC need to do to protect witnesses and victims to protect its own security and cybersecurity infrastructure? This is unlike anything the ICC has ever uh, undertaken. And so can you speak to that? You're exactly right, and I've heard the same thing in my visits to The Hague and when the registrar and other key principles of the ICC have come here to the United States. The court feels like it's under assault. This is an adversary like they've never seen, and it has the skills and ability to infiltrate the institution in ways that, that previous situation countries did not present. You may have read recently there was a, an attempt to place an intern that was masquerading as a, a Brazilian uh, um, graduate student. We are now prosecuting that individual for, for, treat, for spying and other, and, other, um, and other measures here in the United States because they were living undercover here. So these are the means that they are taking in order to try and protect themselves against this particular investigation. And given our tech sector, given our um, excellent cybersecurity um, understanding and skills and personnel, we are, again, uniquely positioned to be able to audit what sort of protections the court has and to be able to make recommendations about how they can strengthen their ability to protect evidence, but also to protect those witnesses. No matter how much open source evidence is out there, and we know it's, it's, there's, there's you know, reams, terabytes being generated, these cases still always will rely upon individuals, as you say, willing to speak truth to power, willing to step up and put themselves and their families at risk because they can tell a story, they can bear witness to what they have experienced. We need to keep those individuals safe or these cases will not be able to proceed effectively. We need to keep them alive. Senator Risch. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador, uh, I think it's pretty obvious to most people that the issue we're talking about here is not a partisan issue. Uh, do you agree with me in that regard? I do, and I really do appreciate the bipartisan cooperation that we've seen here on, on the new legislation and just in supporting my work and the work of my office in this whole portfolio. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. There are some loud voices who dissent that, uh, about our, any involvement in Ukraine, and they get a lot of ink, but uh, my experience up here in Congress is that that's uh, a pretty thin, uh, thin layer. Are you in agreement with that, with your dealings with Congress? I, I do. I feel like I've had nothing but support from many of the members and the staffers that I've spoken with. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, interesting, uh, the, uh, both the chairman and I talked about in our opening statements, the fact that uh, the, uh, for whatever reason, the Department of Defense is pushing back on doing what we, Congress, told them to do. Uh, and as uh, the chairman has indicated, we're, we're not going to tolerate an agency saying, well, we don't like that law, so we're not going to enforce it. So we will be doing something about that. Um, the, the other thing I would point out, for the record here, is that I was intimately involved in drawing that uh, legislation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when you're dealing with the ICC, uh, you're always cognizant of the fact that uh, there could be put pitfalls and that uh, there could be a problem uh, putting a U.S. Uh, servicemen in jeopardy. We scrupulously avoided that and had specific language uh, uh, to uh, see that that didn't happen, yet we wind up in the same, with the same criticism after it's passed. Again, I want to note for the record, I was not contacted by anybody from uh, the Department of Defense as we drafted that legislation. We didn't draft it under a bushel basket. It was out in the open. We put out the text. Nobody came forward and said this was a problem, and now they're talking about it being a problem. So. Um, I hope you'll join us in uh, pressing them to do what, uh, what certainly needs to be done here. 
Yeah, thank you, Senator. I, I agree that the legislation is very carefully crafted. It's, it's surgical, in fact. And all of the other protections of the American Service Members Protection Act remain in place. Um, in addition to the more than 100 bilateral treaties that the State Department negotiated with partners in which the various parties promised not to refer their nationals to the court. And so all of those protections remain in place. There are ways that we can provide assistance without jeopardizing U.S. personnel. Well, and that's exactly what it was designed to do. It was to provide assistance without in any way affecting the other uh, strong provisions that have been in place for many, many years and has wor have worked uh, very well. So. Uh, glad to hear you uh, reiterate that, and we will be reiterating it with the Department of Defense yeah. soon. Um, could you go into, with, with your uh, background and experience and, uh, and legal training, could you uh, talk about in detail how an inter international tribunal uh, for the crime of aggression could be established to address Russia's actions in Ukraine? And I'm talking about now something, I, I guess what I envision mm -hmm. in that regard something separate from ICC. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I'd really appreciate hearing your thoughts on this. You're exactly right that the ICC does not have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression in this matter because Russia has not ratified the Rome Statute. So that has given rise to proposals to establish a dedicated special tribunal in this regard. The Ukrainians see the crime of aggression as the original sin, essentially, that unleashed all of the other war crimes and crimes And rightfully so. And rightfully so. And that's why we are indeed supporting the creation of this. As we looked at the different models, and as I drew upon my own academic experience, but my experience as a practitioner with international and hybrid tribunals, I was guided by five main principles. Number one, we want to maximize accountability for the crime of aggression. Number two, we want to create an institution that is nimble and efficient in its ability to work. Number three, we want to create an institution that is legally sound within the UN charter system and under the, the extant international law. Number four, we want to make sure that this is complementary to other efforts that are out there, including the ICC, but also the International Center for the Prosecution of Aggression that has been stood up in The Hague. Um, and then final, finally, we want to garner widespread cross-regional international support for this effort. And so in looking at all of those factors and at the various models, we have landed upon a proposal for an internationalized special chamber or special tribunal that would be deeply rooted within the Ukrainian national system, but would benefit from assistance from a number of international um, sources. States, even private sector, could be assisting this endeavor. This could take the form of secondments of personnel in the way that the United States has always done with international courts and, and, and um, courts around the world. Could take the form of funding, information sharing, cooperation. This entity could be based outside of Ukraine for security reasons, but then moved back into Ukraine when the time was ripe. And it has the added benefit of continuing to invest in the Ukrainian judiciary, judicial system, prosecutorial authorities, et cetera, which we know will pay long dividends into the future as Ukraine continues to modernize and to reform itself and to align itself with the rest of Europe. And so that is why we have um, and are proposing uh, an internationalized tribunal. So we are promoting this in uh, an entity called the core group that Ukraine has um, convened in order to bring experts together, both at a diplomatic level but also at a technical level, to explore the various models and to try and find a, a consensus to be able to move forward. Yeah, you know, that's a really important effort. I, I know I'm out of time, but I want to ask, pursue one more question, if I might. Uh, um, I, I was fascinated, uh, as we all know, common law develops, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, the Anglo-Saxon common law, whether it's international law. And I was fascinated by the, uh, I think it was the Germans' use of what one would call uh, 
international jurisdiction or, or unified jurisdiction. I forgot the exact name that they used to. And they actually used it and uh, convicted some people uh, mm -hmm. as a result of atrocities in, uh, in Syria. H how does, first of all, are you familiar with the concept? I assume you are. Yes. And then secondly, does that, is there some thought given to using that as a jurisdictional foundation for this type of, a, uh, of an organization we're thinking about setting up? Yeah, I, you're referring, I think, to universal jurisdiction or extraterritorial jurisdiction. The United States has that in our own penal code. We call it present-in jurisdiction because we do have usually an added requirement that the defendant be present here in the United States. But it doesn't matter the nationality of the perpetrator, the nationality of the victim, or the place where the crime was committed. Because these are international crimes, all states have been essentially deputized to prosecute these crimes. So I'm very familiar with the German experience. It has been remarkable to see they have been able to move against high-level figures of the Assad regime in Syria and also members of ISIL who have found themselves in, in Germany. And they have, in, I think in many respects, inspired other European states to utilize crimes that were on the books but that had not really been used. Aggression does not work as well under that model, precisely because many states have not codified the crime of aggression in their domestic penal codes. Ukraine does have a provision. It's sort of a sovereign um, trespassing kind of a provision, and they are doing some active prosecutions now for that crime within their domestic system. But I think they would like to see an internationalized effort because they see Russia's war as not just an assault on their territory, but an assault on the whole international rules-based order, the UN Charter system writ large. And they, they want the international community involved in this effort. So that's a secondary reason to, I think, pursue more of an internationalized body that would have a lot of international support. I, I, I guess I wouldn't be as concerned. Uh, I, I, I detected you're uh, a bit of concern with um, countries not having a specified statute in place regarding this. I guess where we're plowing new ground on this new jurisdictional idea, I guess I wouldn't be as concerned about the fact that, they were, that other countries did not necessarily have that in their body of law. So I uh, hope you'll give that some thought. Yeah, it just means they, they would have to prosecute for war crimes or crimes against humanity. And often you can imagine cumulative charges that would make perfect sense. Many of the acts of aggression are being committed by virtue of war crimes, right? Attacks on sure. critical elements of the, of the civilian infrastructure. So it can be done is the short answer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'm going to follow up on Senator Risch's uh, point and um, reference a, a resolution that Senator Kane and I filed today that supports your efforts for an international tribunal, but takes a different approach to that. And I want to go through that with you, if I might. There's no question about Russia's crime of aggressions, no question about their committing crimes against humanity and genocide. We've had hearings in this committee that have established that. We've had hearings in the U.S. Helsinki Commission that has established the fact that the, this, all the conditions for genocide have been committed by, by Russia. And yes, I strongly support our efforts to help the ICC. I strongly support our efforts to help the Ukrainian prosecutor in any way that we can. But these are crimes against humanity, and they really do need an international tribunal, as you have acknowledged. The problem with the approach that you're taking within the Ukrainian model is that you're using the Ukrainian system. And it raises the question of the perceived impartiality. I don't know how you overcome that with the method that you are pursuing. You also will have legal immunity claims because 
the entity that has committed or the individuals who have committed these crimes are not going to be party to this. So to me, there's a very simple approach. Establish it under the United Nations. That's the international body that is responsible ultimately for international tribunals. It's not only bring appropriate attention to this, these atrocities, but gives us a pathway to accountability and gives us the greatest hope that it will deter future atrocities. So tell me how, why we're not going through the entity that would remove any question of perceived impartiality and any question of immunity. Yeah, thank you for that question, Senator. A couple of responses. Number one, I think there are serious concerns moving forward under the General Assembly on the legal front, but also on the practical front. So starting with the legal front, the body within the United Nations system that has executive power is the Security Council. Of course, it's completely paralyzed at this matter because Russia has the privilege of the veto. and it I agree that normally right. Security Council, but General Assembly has the ultimate power in the United Nations. The General Assembly, however, under the charter system can only make recommendations. It can't take coercive action. So it cannot compel states to act nor can it compel states to cooperate with anything. So the legal question is, could the General Assembly create a court that could exercise compulsion against an individual, hold an individual, Don't you think that's a stronger, they have a stronger claim than one state establishing an international tribunal under their law? Well, it would be an internationalized tribunal, so ultimately so the you're font... using the Ukrainian system right. there. This is an international. I think you run into a comparable, if not more severe, challenge to the legitimacy uh, of, the, uh, body, of the entities that would be coming before the tribunal. I mean, as my civil procedure professor used to always say, jurisdiction is power. And so the font of power with this Ukrainian model is the Ukrainian national system, which has plenary jurisdiction over crimes committed on Ukrainian territory. The General Assembly doesn't necessarily, it's, it's not clear, this would be breaking some serious new ground, to try and exercise coercive jurisdiction over an unwilling defendant. And then to subject that defendant to a, a you know, limitations on their liberty if that person was ultimately convicted. So that's the legal concern. But I, I do want to talk about the practical concern, which is speaking to our diplomats in New York, there is some serious concern about whether we have the votes within the General Assembly to create a body of this nature. So if you look at the voting patterns, what we see is general um, resolutions that are <coughs> calling for justice, condemning Russia's actions, et cetera, garner in the range of 140 votes. The minute that the General Assembly is asked to do something, that drops considerably. So even just blessing the creation of a register of damage got only 90-something votes. Kicking Russia off the Human Rights Council garnered only 93 votes. And there's serious concern that some of the kind of states that don't want to get caught in the revival of Cold War dynamics, they don't want to be on record here voting for something, they, they would abstain. And so you would lose the legitimacy that comes oh, I, from I understand. We don't go down vote. that path unless we have the votes. I, I right. recognize that. Uh, but I would think that we know how to engage other countries it cannot be a sole U.S. effort. The United States cannot sit on the sidelines, as you pointed out. It's got to be a collective action. You've got to nurture this before you take it to a vote. Uh, but it seems to me that the legitimacy here and the final attention given to accountability is worth the consideration. Uh, and I would just urge you to... Con to con I'm glad to see that you're looking for an international tribunal. I think you need one. 
I just don't know how you can get the, remove the perceived challenges when you're using a one country legal system for an international tribunal. Uh, to me, as an attorney, that seems like it's problematic for the, for the type of attention you're trying to get in international legitimacy. There are legal questions as to whether, and I want to just address your two prior questions about immunity and about impartiality as well, and that's a, a nice segue to that. There are some questions about whether any tribunal created under the General Assembly or within the Ukrainian system could overcome the head of state immunity of members of the so-called Troika. That would, again, be a, an issue of first impression, really, um, here. So. In this case, the assumption is that we would not have custody over President Putin or other members of the Troika unless they were no longer in those positions, in which case either uh, an internationalized Ukrainian court or an international body would be free to assert jurisdiction because head of state immunity dissipates when the person is no longer in that position. On the impartiality question, I think the, the response to that is the international community needs to step up and invest in this process within Ukrainian courts. And that ensures that it does not appear to be some version of victor's justice, that this is, in fact, scrupulously fair, that every defendant is entitled to the full due process protections, and um, that only those cases that are based upon the evidence and that merit, um, uh, merit conviction are actually brought to, brought to justice. So uh, I would just point out, I think you have the same problems of getting international cooperation for international tribunal under Ukrainian as you would under General Assembly, perhaps even more. Senator Ricketts. Great. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Starting in April, April of last year, the hor horrific images of corpses littering the streets of Bucha surfaced and really made the entire world realize that Putin's goal was not just territorial conquest, in Ukraine, but the brutal repression of the Ukrainian people. And the nightmare that began in Bucha continues to this day in, in Ukraine. And that's why this hearing is so important. The Ukrainian people deserve justice. And I want to thank you, Madam Ambassador, for your efforts to help get the Ukrainian people that justice. And even though we ta are talking about a lot of the legal and jurisdictional aspects of how to bring Putin and his cronies to justice, I want to make clear that in the short term, the biggest single thing we can do to make sure Ukraine and the Ukrainian people get justice is to make sure that Ukraine wins and Putin loses. That has to happen. And um, that's where, if you just think about what the Biden administration has been doing, it's been slow to respond to the request for Ukraine with regard to the types of weapons they need, uh, whether it's the advanced HIMARS rockets, the Patriot missile systems, Abrams tanks and now F-16 training, it seems like they're always a step behind, almost as if they're trying to live up to Winston Churchill's axiom about Americans that will do the right thing after we've exhausted all of their possibilities. Uh, but in this case, you know, this erratic and slow behavior is costing the Ukrainians the opportunity to achieve the victory and also costing Ukrainians' lives. But the question I want to get into has to do with the abduction that uh, Senator Rich mentioned about of Ukrainian children. According to Ukrainian national uh, databases, Russia has forcibly transferred over 19,000 Ukrainian children to its territory. Uh, however, this number is likely much higher. Some children have been taken from occupied areas where their parents were asked to sign a release form without being told that their children would be taken away and not coming back. Others, including those whose parents were killed by Russian forces, have been forcibly adopted into Russia. 
In February, Yale, Har uh, Yale University's Humanitarian Research Lab identified 32 integration camps where children are indoctrinated, indoctrinated in Russian history, propaganda, language, and culture. These monstrous abductions are part of a general genocide, which we've talked about already, to erase Ukraine's identity by stealing their future. They have rightly been condemned as a war crime by the international community, and with the ICC issuing an arrest warrant in March for Vladimir Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin and his Children's Rights Commissioner, Maria Lvova Belova. So, even though we've <clears throat> focused our information on this or attention on this, the Ukrainian government's NGOs, advocates have been trying to get these children back, but it's, the number is around 400 out of the potential 19,000 or more. What more, Ambassador, can be done to assist parents? As a father of three children myself, this is the most heartrending thing I can think of, is having your children taken away from you, never to see them again. What else can we be doing? Yeah, it's a horrific feature of this war. I absolutely agree with you. As a mother of two, it's terrifying to imagine what those children are experiencing and the anguish that those parents must feel. And I know that there are multiple efforts afoot. So some of them are in the accountability space, but there's also very quiet humanitarian work being done to try and get those children back um, and create a, a list of them so we know when they were last seen, where they may have gone, trying to utilize open source investigative techniques to identify them in photographs, for example, that the Russians are trotting out of you know, happy Ukrainian citizens as they're now being subjected to Russification and re-education to forget their home culture. So there's, there's much that can be done here. Um, I was quite happy to see the ICC move forward on this as their first set of charges. It's a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions, and it, we, it would be interesting to see whether there are additional charges forthcoming on the basis of that. So I, I share your concern, and I think this is something we should be working um, across government to, to rectify. Is there enough legal support for these families to be able to help recover their children? There are. There are. I've, I've been to Ukraine, and I met with the team that is focused on the, the families, the survivors, and they are working very hard to get them the resources they need in order to try and find where those children are and, and do what they can to get them back. Many, many times it requires parents traveling to Russia to actually physically bring their children back, and they are doing that, which is remarkable. What about targeting the perpetrators of this, for again, for war crimes, prosecution, all that? Are we doing enough there to be able to target the people who are facilitating this? Well, what is remarkable about this particular crime is that the two key defendants now have essentially admitted to it, um, and have bragged about it, and have, you know, praised each other for what they claim to be doing on a humanitarian basis when we in fact know there's no humanitarian grounds to be doing this, when, especially when it is Russia itself that is creating the dire circumstances that put those children at risk in the first place. So the Yale study that you mentioned, which is funded by the State Department, they are looking through a whole series of open source um, information, including many of these photographs, and trying to use facial recognition software, for example, to identify individuals who may be future defendants in cases under war crimes and crimes against humanity for this crime base. Mr. Chairman, may I just add one more question? Thank you. Uh, so also, last week, I think, the uh, Ukrainian government was talking about Belarus's complicity in removing about 2,000 Ukrainian children. What is the State Department doing with regard to Belarus and them going along with this horrible crime? Yes, Belarus, there's no question, is uh, quite complicit in Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. And I think it's important to focus, when we think about this aggression tribunal, that Belarus and Belarusian individuals could also be subjected to prosecution under this tribunal. We tend to focus on Russia, but to the extent that they are complicit, and one of the grounds of committing the crime of aggression is allowing your territory to be used to launch acts of aggression against a third state. And so 
Belarus is very much implicated in this um, in this set of crimes. Great. Thank you very much, Madam Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Thank Mr. You. Chairman. Senator Shaheen. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ambassador, for being here. Um, there's been a fair amount of discussion about the Justice for Victims of War Crimes Act that was passed. I was proud to be a co-sponsor of that. And I know that as uh, the chairman and others have mentioned, there have been obstacles to actually fully implementing the legislation. But can you talk about, we've talked about DOD, I understand the National Security Council has also been an obstacle. Can you talk about how you're working in the interagency process to actually administer this legislation, and are there other barriers that you've encountered that this committee could be helpful with or the Congress could be helpful with? Yes, thank you. We do proceed on the basis of an interagency consensus, and so we're working very hard to reach that consensus. Those conversations remain ongoing, and, and we are very grateful to the new legislation. I know the Department of Justice as well is quite happy with the new prosecutorial authorities that they have. They've created this WARCAT, the War Crimes Accountability Team. They've appointed a very seasoned senior prosecutor to be the War Crimes Counselor, focused on looking at those cases that might have a U.S. nexus as well, and 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 contributing to what our friends and allies are doing in their own national systems within Europe. It's, it's really a full court press here. And are you also discussing the idea of restitution and reconstruction? And um, I noticed that one of the asset forfeiture um, items, the, those dollars were put towards um, Ukrainian reconstruction. Are you discussing how that will unfold as well? And can you give us some insights into that? That's right. In fact, we have had the first circumstance in which an asset has been able to be liquidated, which is really exciting to see. This is going to be an enormous endeavor to rebuild, reconstruct Ukraine, given the damage that has been wrought by Russia's war of aggression. The Ukrainians have put forward a proposal for a register of damages that has been very well received by the international community. And indeed, the Council of Europe recently at its summit, which it had not had a summit for several decades, has blessed this proje project. Um, it will be based in The Hague. The idea is that individuals, entities, groups, businesses can register the damage that they have experienced at the hands of um, Russian perpetrators, that when there are a, a body, a pool of assets made available, those could go towards helping to assist those individuals to compensate them for the harm, the, the you know tangible harm, the psychological harm, but also the business harm that small businesses have experienced. So the idea is to build eventually some sort of a claims commission that would be able to adjudicate those claims and help those individuals and, and bid businesses get back on their feet. Um, I think that would really be helpful. Yeah. And if there's anything that we can do to be uh, to support that, please Great. let us know. Thank you. Um, you also talked about the commission on aggression mm -hmm. that could be formed. One of one of the other um, sad commentaries on so many conflicts is the um, the sexual assault and rape element that is so much a part of. Um, crimes and particularly war crimes and obviously we've seen a number of reports about that with respect to the war in Ukraine. One suggestion that has been made to me that I'd like to get your um, analysis of is the idea of setting up a separate commission that deals only with those sex crimes. Do you have any thoughts about whether that might be helpful and if, if that would set up a duplicate process that would not be helpful, or if because that has been such a, a focus of so many conflicts that that would help to shine a light on our ability to address those kinds of crimes. Yes, thank you, Senator Shaheen. Um, 
we know that these crimes are historically underreported and underprosecuted, um, and for reasons that we all understand, including stigma that is associated with this in, in families and in communities, and I think we all need to work to, to rectify that. Um, one of the main goals of the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group that I mentioned that we're funding and, and supporting with the UK and the EU is to bring more of a survivor-centered approach to prosecutions in Ukraine. And the prosecutor general is, is often the first to admit that that was not really the way they had done things. Mm -hmm. Witnesses were witnesses for the prosecution. They were asked to give their testimony, and then they were, you know, asked to go on their way. And he really wants to change that, and I think he's genuinely devoted to changing that. And thinking about his war crimes unit as being kind of a, a, a a pilot in, in a way that could then extend into his other areas of prosecution. So he's very keen to strengthen the ability to prosecute conflict-related sexual violence. And we have a number of experts that have been deployed through the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group that have deep experience in this way to do trauma-informed investigations and prosecutions. Whether or not we need a whole separate body, it's, it's interesting. I'd like to think about it a little bit. Obviously, I always want to shed light on, this, on these crimes because they are so underreported. I think it's important that we acknowledge that they exist and we empower survivors to come forward and feel safe speaking about it. Um, but I, I do know that the Prosecutor General and the International Criminal Court is very focused on this, and they're doing so in a way that's trauma-informed and survivor-centric. And that certainly is appreciated, I know, but that's also very much dependent upon who the individual prosecutor is and what the makeup of the ICC is thinking about at the time. And one of the advantages to codifying mm -hmm. this kind of an effort would be that it would make it a focus mm -hmm. for the future. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree completely. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, uh, for leading this important hearing and for your um, joint and clearly um, shared uh, passion about this. Uh, as you mentioned, Chairman, earlier, you and I and a bipartisan group of senators uh, went to The Hague, met with the prosecutor of the ICC, many of their senior staff had long conversations about it, and then acted promptly and effectively in a bipartisan way and amended the underlying statute um, under the, um, I think it's the APSA, for many years, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense uh, and the U.S. government has resisted cooperation, support, engagement with the ICC because of a concern about the potential for U.S. service members um, to at some point be hauled in front of the court. We acted to amend that statute specifically in the case of Ukraine um, in reliance on the circumstances. Like many of my colleagues, I am outraged at Russia's conduct in Ukraine during this war. I believe there's been something like 88,000 documented atrocities, crimes against humanity. You've gone through them. My colleagues have gone through them. Um, and I'm grateful for all the different international partners of the EU and the UN and the OSCE and the ICC. Um, but I'm struck by two quotes from earlier in this hearing. You, in response to a line of questioning, said, it's hard to imagine us standing on the sidelines. Um, and you, Mr. Chairman, said the Department of Defense doesn't get to choose which laws it obeys. Help me understand what the challenge is here in getting um, our government to cooperate with the ICC, you put it well, um, they've never faced uh, a challenge like this. Uh, Russia can be counted on, not just in the case of the Brazilian student, uh, to infiltrate their systems, to attack witnesses, to undermine their capacity to successfully prosecute. We have a wide range 
um, of important resources we can provide, intelligence, documentation, financial support, operational advice, um, partnerships in terms of uh, protecting witnesses, why would we not fully partner with the ICC in this undertaking? Thank you. We have had a long-standing objection to the ICC proceeding against U.S. personnel. Understandable. That objection is fixed. It guides my work. All of my interactions with the court, I have that as my lodestar, in essence. I think the fear is that if we, in this matter, assist with a prosecution that involves another non-party state, another state that has not ratified the ICC treaty, that we would somehow erode our ability to protect our own service members because we are also in, we are similarly situated in the sense that we are also non-party states. The reality is that that argument has no purchase before the ICC. And all elements of the court has already shown that. They have already proceeded against the nationals of non-party states in the Burma matter, for example, in the Georgia matter, in the Ukraine matter, in the Democratic Republic of Congo matter, where Rwandan was in the sites at one point. So it, it, has, no, it has no protective power before the court. What has protective power, I think, is engagement, building trusted relationships, keeping lines of communication open. And not committing gross atrocities. <laughs> and, and if there are credible allegations against U.S. service members, having a credible process so that we can say, we are handling this. We are right. handling this ourselves because our service members deserve the full panoply of constitutional due process protections under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So I think that we can help in this matter and also maintain the protections that we have. And as I praised the, the amendments, they're surgical, they're carefully crafted, and they leave a whole number of protections in place that have not have remained untouched. Two other quick questions, if I might. The Alien Tort Claims Act, which I think is 28 U.S.C. 1350, mm -hmm. um, was for some time viewed as exactly um, the statute enabling um, prosecutions or actions, claims for crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. um, that has been narrowed. Um, why not legislatively um, strengthen that? Why not use that as the platform for action by Congress? I think there is grounds to amend and revisit the ATA. It's a very old statute, right? I mean, it was drafted it among the at, oldest. The founders, it was passed at the founding of our, of our nation. And as you mentioned, the Supreme Court has narrowed it considerably with their doctrines of extraterritoriality. And right. so I could imagine some very discreet amendments to the Alien Tort Statute that would open it back up to individuals who have access to U.S. courts being able to advance claims against individuals or entities, so, so long as the 14th Amendment due process protections exist over personal jurisdiction. Understood. We also met with the Prosecutor General, Kostin. Um, what else can we and should we be doing to strengthen Ukraine's ability mm -hmm. uh, to investigate, to document, to prosecute, to hold accountable perpetrators of war crimes in Ukraine? I think there's more that the Department of Justice could do if they had the resources to do so in terms of seconding their expert personnel to work side by side with mm -hmm. Ukrainian prosecutors. I know the Attorney General is very keen to do that. He and the Prosecutor General have developed a very close relationship, very trusting relationship. And so while I'm working through civil society actors, through academic entities, through experts that have been drawn from the world's war crimes tribunals, we have a lot of expertise in-house. I can't fund that with the kind of funding that I have, but our INL office can can help with the, with the Department of Justice. So that would be another way that I think we could continue to assist the Prosecutor General in the momentous task that he has ahead of him. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you for your work Thank in this area. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Senator Young. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Welcome. 
Good Ambassador, good to be with you. Uh, last month, Senator Rose and I introduced the Ukraine Human Rights Policy Act. Uh, this would, uh, among other things, establish a process for Congress to nominate individuals for human rights sanctions through CATSA. Uh, through this legislation, uh, it's our hope and, and fervent belief that we can ensure that U.S. has the authority to respond to the Russian government's uh, atrocities and continue to uphold our commitment to stand with the Ukrainians in their fight for uh, democracy as well as their own humanity. Can you describe our government's current processes for selecting both on-the-ground perpetrators and senior officials for targeted sanctions for human rights violations? And, and uh, uh, tell me to what extent uh, the process is working or not working. Indeed. Thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, we have a sanctions coordinator now within the United States State Department, which is very helpful working with Treasury and Commerce to coordinate the whole range of sanctions that do exist. I know that we have deployed them very robustly in the Russia context. More than 7,000 individuals, for example, has been subject to travel bans under 7031C. We have a number, a number of dozens of individuals who've been subjected to individual sanctions. We have the Wagner Group, of course, also subject to sanctions. So the key, of course, is to have um, designation packages. We need to know the individual's name, but we also often need to know some biometrics in order to be able to tell banks around the world to freeze assets if they happen to have them. It's not enough to say there's a grainy photograph of some dude in Bucha, right, that we want to sanction. We need to have information. And so to the extent that we can continue to collect that information from all available sources, the Ukrainians are very keen to assist us in this regard. They want to see these sanctions authorities exercised to the maximum extent possible as well, but also civil society actors who often have have unique sources of information. And my office is funding a number of these civil society organizations that want to feed into these sanctions packages. So if this legislation were to pass and, and Congress were empowered to nominate individuals for human rights sanctions through CATSA, how would the interaction between uh, your office and the sanctions coordinator have to change? I don't know that it would. I'd have to look at the legislation. I apologize. I haven't seen the draft text. I'm, I'm happy to take that back and, and give it a close read. Um, we work quite closely with them. It, it's really their job, though, so we are often more in a support role. If we come across names that we think are appropriate in any situation in which we know we have a sanctioned authority, we will help them. We often are also quite encouraging of them to make sure that our sanctions parallel justice processes that are happening around the world, including at the ICC. So if we have a sanctions authority, we should be sanctioning individuals who are also being prosecuted by the ICC, right? They have reasonable grounds to believe they've committed atrocity crimes. So we'd be keen to be of assistance in that regard. That's, that's fantastic. We'll, we'll follow up with the draft Please legislation. And, and uh, if you have any technical feedback, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd welcome that. Um, we'd all agree that, that people who commit war crimes and crimes against humanity have to be held criminally accountable, uh, though it remains an open question as, as to how this can best be accomplished. How do you assess the likelihood of any sort of accountability for Russia's atrocities in Ukraine? Um, is it likely to be confined to those who, who are plucked off of the battlefield? Uh, or uh, is, is, is there a way that uh, we can ensure it's broader in scope as, as we look um, God willing, uh, to a day in which the conflict ceases. My hope is that the various pathways to justice that exist will be ready, prepared to move forward the minute there's a target of opportunity. But you've put your finger on the real challenge, which is custody over the accused. 
There are individuals in Ukrainian custody, and those cases have been able to proceed. They also have the ability to proceed in absentia. We don't in our courts, and you know, many courts do, many courts don't, depending on their national legal framework. Um, those cases, though, in absentia are sometimes unsatisfying, as you can imagine. You want to see that defendant in the dock having to answer to those particular charges. So th- this is a long game, though, it, those of us in this work. In fact, just today, the Yugoslavia Tribunal issued its final judgment, now decades after the war in the f- former Yugoslavia. And then, likewise, last week, the final, one of the few final Rwandan Genesideres was captured in South Africa and now will be brought to justice. So we have to think about this in terms of generations, not in terms of the next year. So my goal is to collect evidence, preserve that evidence, strengthen the systems so that the foundation is laid for when we do get that individual who chooses to travel, who who gets tossed out of Russia, whatever the circumstances, fall into custody, we are ready, evidence is available, charges can be pressed, and that case can move forward. You've just anticipated sort of my next line of question because we, it, it, I wouldn't expect, uh, we certainly cannot uh, bank on uh, Russian government, however constituted, once violence has, has ceased, to cooperate and, and send their own uh, nationals to us, though a, a variety of carrots and sticks can be brought to bear. How should our bilateral diplomatic behaviors towards Russia change um, until Russia were to comply with international criminal justice efforts? Yes. I mean, we are all hopeful, I think, for a political transformation within Russia. And the hope is that the Russian people and that others in leadership positions recognize the terrible disaster that this has been for Russia, militarily, but also in terms of their just standing on on the international stage. They're an international pariah. Their assets are frozen around the world. You know, they can't travel. Many of them will not be able to travel. You're hearing, you know, all sorts of limitations that have been placed upon Russia and Russian figures because of the terrible decision to invade Ukraine. So we need to, I think, strengthen relationships as we have tried to do always with moderates, with reformers, with those democratic champions, with civil society actors that stand ready to try and build a genuine civil society movement within Russia. Um, but we, we, you know, there's only so much one can do while Putin remains in power. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Uh, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Madam Ambassador. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. As you just said in response to Senator Young, and I think you got to the, the core of the issue, uh, this is the long game, but it's essential uh, that we send the message that we will pursue the long game and pursue the perpetrators of um, crimes against humanity and these other crimes until we achieve justice. And I think the example you gave from Yugoslavia is a good one of that persistence uh, because we can essentially make determinations and findings of war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide determinations. Uh, But as you said, unless we can find a way to get essentially jurisdiction over the individual, we're not able to follow through with the prosecution. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So one of the things Congress did recently was try to provide more avenues uh, for the administration to get um, jurisdiction over the individual, including through extradition. So my question is, have you been able to use any of those additional tools uh, with respect to prosecuting these war crimes? And do you have any plans in place to do so? Yes, thank you. I think the DOJ is probably a little bit better positioned to answer that question. I am grateful to that, and I'm, I'm very grateful that 
Congress recently has helped align our statutes with those of our closest friends and allies in Europe who have very robust prosecutorial authorities and a kind of constellation of overlapping statutes to be able to do this work. This is about international cooperation. These are transnational crimes. You may have a witness who's located in one country testifying in proceedings in another country against an individual who's found in a third country who committed crimes in a fourth country. So we need to be coordinated, and extradition is a really key tool in this are, are you aware of any examples where we, the Justice Department, is seeking, seeking extradition where a third country is not agreeing to provide I'm it? not. I, I can, though, if you'll indulge me, point out a little gap that does exist in the penal code that I haven't mentioned, but I know that DOJ cares deeply about, and that is the ability to seek the extradition of a perpetrator who would torture a U.S. citizen. Because we have what's called present in jurisdiction, the defendant needs to be present in the United States for us to press charges against that person. And we can't seek their extradition if they're not present or under crimes that require their presence. I'm, you have to have presence of the person to press those charges, and you can't seek extradition unless they're present. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. If you were to do a very surgical um, amendment to 182340 at USC 2340 to allow for present in jurisdiction. If we knew that U.S. citizens had been subjected to torture abroad, we could seek the extradition of those individuals, and I know that DOJ would appreciate that. Well, we look forward to working with you to close the loophole. I think okay. probably yeah, that is a little tiny loophole. It's inadvertent, to and do so that. it's a quick fix. So let me um, follow up. You know, the, the, the chairman uh, made the point, which I agree with, uh, which. Uh, is that we pass legislation instructing all agencies of the U.S. government to cooperate with the ICC and provide evidence uh, that would support uh, their prosecution of war crimes. Uh, but the Defense Department uh, is clearly dragging their feet. My question to you is, what, what has the impact of that been? In other words, what evidence might we have been able to supply to the ICC that we've not supplied because DOD has not been cooperative? We generally don't discuss the types of information that gets shared, but it is, I think, safe to say that there is um, a range of very actionable information that we have been able to collect that might be very helpful to a justice process anywhere. And we can share that with other entities. We can share that with the Commission of Inquiry for the UN. We can share that with individual states that might be prosecuting. We can share that with the Prosecutor General, but we can't share it with the ICC. Because of the position DOD has taken, right? Because we don't have consensus yet on that, on moving forward. And the one agency that's not consenting is DOD, is that right? You did hear, I think, the Secretary of Defense at the Appropriations Committee. So it's just a yes or no. I mean, that's, I don't think we're right. Yeah. The yes. Defense Department is not cooperating in that way, right? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, Ambassador Ron Scott. Good to see you. Um, it's it's Van Scott, right? Van Scott. Van Scott, yeah, perfect. Van Scott. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about 2014. So a lot of the focus has been yes. on justice and accountability following the February 2022 invasion of Ukraine by Russia, but this was an invasion that began in 2014. So if you can talk about efforts to pursue accountability against Russia for abuses in Ukraine that began in 2014. Just to yes, level set. We, we forget that, don't we? But that this war really did begin in 2014. Yeah. Um, and while it was not, you didn't see the level of horror that you see today, there were war crimes committed then. And 
um, we, we don't even have access to some of those territories to have full sense. And, and we've seen, as Bucha was mentioned, as, as, as the Ukrainians take back their territory, you see the consequences of Russian control and, and occupation very starkly. Um, there are a number of efforts underfoot. In fact, the project that I am funding, we had begun to fund before 2022. It was a much smaller project. We have had to scale that considerably in light of the massive explosion of um, war crimes and other atrocities being committed since 2022. But already there was a, a, a project in place to support the prosecutor general in exploring how to bring potential cases to the extent they had custody over any individuals and had witnesses and, and evidence available to do that. The United Nations also has, a, has had a long-standing monitoring mission focused on Ukraine that has been collecting information from the beginning. And so that information is all available and can be shared with prosecutorial authorities around the world. Talk to us a little bit about the challenges of dealing with abuses committed by the Wagner Group mm -hmm. as an example of a non-state agency. So yes. the ICC probably set up with a certain kind of um, defendant or target in mind. The Wagner Group is a um, non-state actor. Talk a little bit about the challenges that that presents. Yeah, there's no question that the Wagner Group is a malign force wherever it is finds itself. This across the Sahel and other places, Central African Republic, now we're seeing in Libya and, of course, moving into Ukraine. They are a non-state actor, but most of the crimes that are prosecutable either in our domestic system, in other courts' domestic systems, and at the ICC make no distinction between state actors and non-state actors. So they can be held responsible for any war crimes, crimes against humanity, or other depredations that they might commit wherever they may find themselves. And I know that the prosecutor of the ICC is very interested in looking at Wagner in part because they are operative in so many of the other situation countries where he already has jurisdiction and is investigating. And so, um, you know, to the extent that we can be of assistance in that regard, I think that could help um, further isolate and, and neutralize Wagner around the world. I'd like to change topics. Some, I sometimes do this in a, uh, in a hearing. I take advantage of a great witness, not on the advertised topic, but on uh, something okay. that you have as an expertise, and that's Venezuela. Uh, and yes. while with you here, I just am, I, I want to ask about it. In this hemisphere, an estimated 7 million people have fled Venezuela since 2015, rivaling the 8 million that have fled Ukraine. Um, I will be reintroducing the Effect Human Rights in Venezuela Act, which would direct the department to push for an extension of the independent UN fact-finding mission to investigate gross violation of human rights in Venezuela. That mission issued a detailed report last September assessing that the Venezuelan Maduro regime through the state's intelligence services uh, have uh, committed crimes against humanity, including um, uh, torture, extrajudicial killing, sexual violence. The ICC has indicated its intention to resume the investigation. What is your, your assessment as you liaise with the ICC about their ongoing efforts in Venezuela, and what lessons can we draw from the fact-finding mission in Venezuela about documenting crimes against civilians? Yes, thank you, Senator Kane. I know this has been a longstanding interest of yours, um, and the Venezuelan people really do deserve our full attention here. Um, Ukraine is important, but I take my title very seriously. I'm the ambassador of large for global criminal justice, and so I do try and get out into the field, into other situation countries, and to, to continue to push for justice there. The fact-finding mission, we supported that very strongly. Um, they have done excellent work. Their reports are quite 
telling in terms of documenting the various crimes against humanity that have been committed across, across Venezuela when it comes to innocent protesters, when it comes to members of the opposition. The courts have become tools of, of repression rather than tools of justice. Um, and all of that has been scrupulously documented by the fact-finding mission. As you mentioned, they, there is an ICC investigation there. The prosecutor has been there. He tried, I think, valiantly to work collaboratively with the Maduro government in order to encourage them to do their own investigations here and to show good faith in terms of rooting out the perpetrators of violence against protesters and others. And I think he's reached the end of his rope in this regard and now has moved to be able to reopen that investigation and to move forward in a more um, you know, adversarial context and adversarial is, posture. Is, is there a chance that some of the other nations in the region that have resumed relations with the Maduro government Colombia and Brazil uh, could, could, if they would be willing to do so, could effectively pressure the Maduro government to be more cooperative with the ICC? I would certainly hope so. I mean, that case exists because of an unpre then unprecedented collective referral by the region to the ICC. This was the region saying, we want the international court engaged here in Venezuela. We can't manage it ourselves. We can't manage it at a re regional level. We need the international court involved. And so I would hope that they would follow up on that commitment to justice and, and also continue to put pressure on, on the Venezuelans to participate and cooperate with the work of the ICC, but also to do this work, the hard work, internally I, I would to bring that, justice. I would hope that they would do the same thing, especially since Colombia is very much on the front line of, of uh, consequences of the disaster in Venezuela, and they shouldn't be reticent to call it out and uh, encourage the Maduro government to cooperate with the ICC. Yeah, indeed. I, I was just in Colombia. They are on the forefront of transitional justice with their own system, and so I think they see the value of investing in the justice sector here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Mr. Chair, I appreciate it. Well, let me thank you, Senator Kane, for raising these issues. I share Senator Kane's concerns and interests in this regard. Um, and uh, I appreciate uh, uh, your, your pursuing it. Uh, Ambassador, let me just say uh, I've sat and presided over a lot of hearings. I've declared some of them in which I've been some of the worst hearings I've ever presided over. Uh, and I, you were there, right? I know which one I was talking about. Please this tell me you're the there's a but. Please tell me there's a but here. This is one of the best hearings uh, I presided. I appreciate your clarity and your directness in terms of your answers to questions. Thank you. Something that is refreshing that maybe you could hold a seminar at the State Department about. Thank you. <laughs> the record for this hearing will remain open until the close of business on June the 1st, 2023. Please ensure that questions for the record are submitted no later than tomorrow. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you.